All right. Uh, good afternoon. This is part two of our shiurim. Uh, Rabbi Klavan is going to begin in, a, in just a couple minutes, but we did have a dedication, and um, I, I do want to mention that. Um, so dedicated this week uh, to the Rafua Shlema Bikarov. Um, I have to tell you that the uh, I'm going to give you an update in a minute because I just got an update about a half hour ago about it. Vlad Rishon Rav. This is uh, the child that is the child that is so young and fragile, the one that still needs the compassion of God, uh, the first child to his parents. Eliezer Yaakov, Verena Rochel Tapolovsky. Verena um, uh, Rochel Tapolovsky uh, grew up with another name, of course. She's my daughter. Sheyotzel Avir Alam Linshom Lachiot, Vishavas Go to Shavat. That uh, came out five weeks earlier than we expected on this past Shabbos. Parshas Toldos, and that, of course, seems to the word, the term Toldos itself yep. is definitely a, a good simon for so later. <laughs> right. As, uh, and as I said, Tia, Tavshin Pei, Tia Simchas Purioseno, the Simcha of fertility. We should have Simcha in the fertility. His complete and total recovery of the newborn baby boy, it's up there, uh, Yankee. Uh, born to Rina and Elik of Gaithersburg, Maryland on Shabbos, November 30th. Um, I want to uh, speak out especially the recognition of the outstanding, dedicated professional staff of Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C., the neonatal intensive care unit. They are incredible. Um, they're, um, you can't say more than dedicated professional, and they are uh, the number one uh, NICU uh, three years in a row. And there's something knowing that your grandson is being treated by the best. And I saw it. I saw their uh, calm, their calm manner, and the way they dealt with something. Which the hospital that he was transferred from were stymied, were worried. Uh, they caused us all to go into a, a, a real panic and, and to be very, very unnerved. Just the idea of we don't know what's going on here. We can't deal with it. We need to send a, um, an emergency ambulance. So that was on Sunday. Uh, this is my grandson. I had a granddaughter a couple of weeks ago that was born early. This is a grandson who was born early. So, so, <laughs> what? Uh, yes, the cousin, the pre-me-predomination. Um, and Baruch Hashem, if you would have talked to me an hour ago, I would have said we're going to say Tilim after the shear. It still might be appropriate, but my daughter called my wife, and as I was waiting for the light here, you'll listen here on 21, she said that they are very hopeful where they were talking about a very long stay. They're talking about a much shorter stay now, and they they are giving her a real great sense that they might be able to take the baby home soon. So this is... Which hospital they came from? 
Yes, it's the, do you know Maryland area? Do you know yes. the one? So they were, so they actually were in the hospital in um, MedStar in Olney, O-L-N-E-Y. It's a small local hospital. Um, and we we drove out there. It's the only one, yeah. <laughs> Mark. It was the... Uh, um, Yes, yes, a sick joke. So we actually... You want us all to have the motor pumps. <laughs> right? So, so anyway, so the point is is that I, yeah, I want to give the... Look, they they were able to deal with her in Malayda, and I actually uh, drove out there right after Shabbos, so we... Um, you know, my, my the, the phone rang on Shabbos because my daughter said, I need my mother, I need my mother. And you know, she said she wanted her mother. She was such. You know. So we were gonna, we were clearing on sending my wife on Shabbos, but again, we ended up leaving right after Shabbos, and we actually stayed in um, Rabbi Milakovsky's. I forgot what's the name of it called again. Oiv. Oiv Shalom Talmud Torah. Oiv Shalom Talmud Of Olni. Is that and, the only place? The second, the second time around, it's definitely not funny. <laughs> but I have to tell you, Robert Milkovsky was not there, but he instructed his team, his daughter, and his co-rabbi there. They took care of us in the most incredible way as well, giving us a place to be right near the hospital and then just a place to, to, to have some menucha and have some... So Baruch Hashem, everybody who's... Many people have had these type of stories. Mikam Yisrael, Klal Yisrael is always there to support him. So that's really, again, the, it's dedicated to the boys. Rafua Mirz Hashem, we should hear good things. Gershon, I called from the road, and he, uh, uh, as usual... Uh, it, always prepared. It was ready to. Yeah. <laughs> it was ready to to, to step in. Uh, I just want to mention that again. This is the 211th yard site, uh, which is Gershon came up with the seventh of Kislev of Rav Aryeleiv, whose father Ben Chaim from Breslau. Uh, the family's name, as you probably know from your research, Gershon was was Lowenstam. Lowenstam. Well, we'll get to that. Okay. So that was the, my little research this morning uh, indicated. I'm sure Gershon is going to trump me on that. But, but that's the way um, he was uh, the rabbi of Rotterdam, which, of course, is a city in, in Holland. And uh, Gershon, as I said, there's two brilliant responses by the author. Um, again, Mark, you appreciate this. That again, I just came up with this here. The Kohen Godel Seal, what's the big deal? And making use of the flaming of the flame burning hot, why not? So those are the two questions, the Hanukkah questions, and I'm going to give it over now to Gershon to take it over. <laughs> 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 right. Thank you, Rafalovich. Um, just to comment, the genesis of the idea for today's shear. A couple of years ago, I stumbled across a weekly mailing list run out of somebody, I think, in Los Angeles. That's a list of all the rabbinical yard sites during the week. And he's really good. He's got Hasidish, Miknat, Nisnagdish, Ashkenaz, Fard, um, modern, yeshivish, the whole gamut. He's really good. as whatever he can find and put into print, he does. And it's said and that... And if he wants a on that day, you're covered. <laughs> that's a whole other story. It's a different list. And it said that the yard site of 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 Breslau was today Zion Kislev. Um, have anybody heard of the Jewish Encyclopedia? Yes. 
Okay. Might be the only one. The Jewish Encyclopedia was composed about a century ago. It's a nice scholarly work. Um, anybody heard of the Encyclopedia Judaica? That's what I meant. Ah. Encyclopedia Judaica is a much more modern work that basically took everything from the Jewish Encyclopedia and expanded on it. The article, the online, you can find what claims to be the complete unedited text of the Jewish Encyclopedia. So, of course, that's where I ended up, and I found some information there that I found to be, to say, strange, to put it mildly, and therefore I will say that I now have a suffix as to whether or not Zion Kislev is actually the art site, <laughs> primarily because the authors of the entry claimed that it was actually Erev Pesach instead of Zion Hanukkah. Um, in a case like this, since... They're close, but uh, in a case like this, I'm going to simply go with, as anybody who's ever David Nussel's fight knows, Suffolk Yard site Lohakel. So therefore, we will assume that it's today. <laughs> All right. Are you, you going to talk more about his, his history? Or a little, yeah, I'm going I'm I'm, okay, to... just the beginning. I'm going to interject this one thing. That <laughs> That's I just did, the beginning. <laughs> yes, I want to interject one thing. This is We're going to make a team up on this. But I have one thing, and it, it, it's in your... When I was going through the Pnearies Hakdoma today, right. um, the um, and, and I found his the Haskomas to his sefer was printed in 1790. Right, um, the sefer, but he was getting his Haskomas, you know, in 1789. If you take a look at, you, I don't know if it's up on the board. Oh, here it is. Yeah, you can take a look here. Take a look at this Haskoma here on the bottom, um, and you can see that it was actually given. By Rav Meshulam Zalman Akayan on Zion Kislev. <laughs> so, whether he is your site was, was of this day or not, one of the things that got this safer published or that pushed the safer through was this Haskama that was written, as you can see, on Zion Kislev, the Rav of Fjorda. So, we know that for sure. Right. It was written on Zion <laughs> so, either way, we have something to talk about. So, when I thought that you weren't giving share, I thought you were the party. This is a rare treat. I'm, and I'm, I'm, able, I'm able to eat. I'm able to eat while you're eating. All right. I'm able to eat while you're eating. All right. So. I can see us beat up, you know, Gershon and, like, and like, you won't think that it's personal. Incidentally, we have two portraits of Rabbi Yagleib, as one blogger puts it, one artist was kinder than the other. There's one picture, and. Uh, it is not sharing properly. This oh, wow. Is, that's, hello. That's fair. Gary, who is this? Who is Pnei Arye? Pnei Arye, Arye Leib von Breslau. So there are two pictures of him, and for some reason only one of them is showing on screen. How long ago was he? Okay. Anyway. He, he died in 18... 1807. This is the kind of picture? This is the kind of picture, I believe. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, he was a rubber one of the Right, so Rabbi Yaleb was born in Breslau in 1741. Was Breslau, Germany? Yes, Prussia, technically at the time, but as we all know, borders in Europe were somewhat fungible over the centuries. Um, he lived in Breslau, he was in Lisa, Posen, and ended up in Berlin, where he became a member of the famed base medrash of the philanthropist of Daniel Yaffe, um, who apparently had a, a base medrash for Mixi on him. The Jewish Encyclopedia, Kedarka Vakedesh. So you can see why I have a problem with some of the uh, information here. It says, quote, um, 
and later in Berlin, where he was an inmate of the base medrash of the philanthropist Daniel Yaffe. Um, my, father had a, my father had a cousin in Baltimore who used to threaten his high school kids in TA that if they didn't behave, they'd send him to, he'd send them to jail, which he meant tells in Cleveland, but uh, he would have appreciated that. Uh, <laughs> a few years apart, though, but... Anyway, <laughs> so that you can see why I have a bit of a problem with the Jewish Encyclopedia entry, and that's just one of them. Anyway, um, his first uh, position as a Rav was in, uh, actually before we get to that, um, he became quite well known in the Olam HaTera. He has uh, frequently corresponded with such luminaries as Rav Pinchas Halevi Horowitz, known as the Baal HaFla, uh, Rav Yishai Berlin, Rav David Tevla Schiff, and others of that like, or was it Mayor Vile and the like, he was well known in the Alamatera and considered to have been one of the Agdele Adar. Um, his first position was as the Rav of Emden, and in 1781 was called to succeed Rav Avram Lipschitz as the chief rabbi of Rotterdam. Um, while he was known for his, for his Limitera, what possibly could have been his greatest achievement was in 1796. Emancipation in 1796 did a number on a lot of different communities, primarily because of the social revolution that it engendered, and social revolution on various levels, including the governments of the governance of the communities. And primarily in Rotterdam, the old Parnassim had a major problem with the new social order or lack thereof, and Rivadi uh, Leib spent a lot of time ensuring a relatively smooth and safe transition to keep the Kahiro running on a relatively functioning level without disintegrating right. into Machoikas and as in found in other places. Um, this was 1796. So right at the emancipation the was... Right, right at the yeah. Rev. Aryeh, his name was Aryeh Leib. Aryeh Leib. He's known as Aryeh Leib von Breslau because he's from Breslau. Okay. Um, he also had an extensive secular knowledge. Um, as the encyclopedia says, quote, many Christian scholars and theologians were among his friends. And um, even a century after his passing in Rotterdam, he was still held in high esteem. Most any of the surviving fragments of manuscripts were destroyed with the destruction of Rotterdam during the war. Um, his magnum opus, as you mentioned, is Sefer Pnei Aryeh, which he's writing in Hakdama. He's 48 years old. He doesn't know how long he has to live, and therefore it's time to go and uh, make his mark in Yelam Atera so that he is not forgotten, and goes and prints out a nice series of uh, various chuvas and other topics. So a lot of interesting stuff in here. Um, I, I can tell you just one thing I found interesting when I read his Hakdama this morning <clears throat> was that he said that almost anything that he printed was something that he had actually shared with at least three other scholars. <laughs> and in other words, he didn't just, everything that just he thought was good, he put up there. He put it, so he, he wanted to make sure that it had some sort of quality. With scientific articles today. Peer-reviewed journal. Peer-reviewed. Well, this was a self-peer-reviewed, <coughs> but at the same time, it shows a level of intellectual maturity that you do not always find in Sfar. Um, besides um, standard shuvas and halachic rulings, he has a nice 12-chapter piece called Yesod Hashtaras, which is a classic uh, work that's <coughs> advisable for anybody who really wants to go into sh- the issues of Shtaras. 
Um, but he also veers away from pure halacha. He's got uh, various explanations of biblical and midrashic passages. For example, in uh, Simon Ayin Tess, he has a whole he has a whole discussion on the mitzvah of yibum, and says that yibum he says really he discusses quote the problem of immortality, and stressing that the essence of yibum is connected with the doctrine of metempsychosis. Anybody ever heard of that word? Gilgal. Yes, Gilgal. <laughs> so yibum is connected to Gilgal and Tikkun Hanefesh. If anybody wants to spend some time going through that, it's sure to be fascinating. Um, in 1793, France invaded the Netherlands. He composed various tefillos that were in use in the various communities around Holland. They were published in Hebrew and also translated into Dutch and printed by a Christian, Jan Sharp, in Rotterdam in 1793. So he was held with some quite a bit of esteem by the uh, other communities in the area. Ashkenaz? Uh, so good, probably Ashkenaz. Yeah. Yeah, he was the he was the he was the he was the but he, but but he was the Ashkenazi rub of Rotterdam, right? Okay, that's what I was asking. Right, apparently, there was a lot of Sfar. Right, apparently, the Ashkenazi community in Rotterdam was larger than the Sephardi community. The Sephardi community was closer towards Amsterdam and Den Haag, but Rotterdam still was a sizable community at the time. Um, he also composed some poems, one of which uh, Mizmor Lashabbos was republished by the then chief rabbi, Rabbi Dr. Ritter at around the turn of the last century. Um, this is where the Jewish Encyclopedia shows its bias again and says, quote, um, a poem that can hardly be characterized as successful. So it makes you wonder what uh, they were talking about in here. Can I, can I just add also, if anyone has, has appetite has been wedded <laughs> to find out more about this fascinating figure, the whole safer can be downloaded for free, mm -hmm. and it's actually it's actually Hebrew books, Hebrew books yes, a, an upgraded edition, the 2010 edition, right. where it's got very nice print, and uh, which is where we took the chuba. These these these. Yep. It's, it's a chuba safer. It's a It's a chuba. It's a safer of letters. So some of them are chubos, Some of them are just tradition that he's thrown out, and some of them are just. General topics, and but it's most of it is all based on letters to various rabbis. Um, he had three children. Um, mm -hmm. One son was his children took the name Lovenstam, which in Dutch means descendants of a lion. His name was Arye, so his children took that Arie name, Arye Leib. So that's where his children are known. His one son was. Um, Actually, if we want to talk about the uh, details, one son was um, Rav Avram, who was a son, became a Rav in Meserit. Another son, Chaim, who was the Rav of Luvardin, whose son Menachem eventually succeeded his grandfather after a few years as the chief Rav of Rotterdam. And then another son, Rav Mordechai, who served as an assistant Rav in Rotterdam. Um, if you want to just get a quick glance of a scholarly perspective, scholars like the guy because of the following here at the beginning of Tshuva Mem Aleph. In Amsterdam, 
to the Gvir HaNechbad Rav Gumpel Volpin Volpin Tibol. Al Divras Asher Hodiani Malas HaGvir Nereyosha Anadiv HaRav Rav Chaim Philadelphia. Any idea who that is? Chaim Solomon, the famous philanthropist in, in Philadelphia. Bank. So the, the tr- this is one of the first references in rabbinic literature to uh, the New World. <laughs> Basically, the story in this tshuva, this guy Vulcan Vulcanbittel or whatever his name was. Exactly. This guy, whoever this guy knew Chaim Solomon, because probably it was Amsterdam, connections and the like, and he persuaded him to give a certain sum of tzedakah to give to a particular Ani in Amsterdam. And by the time the money came, the Ani's financial condition had improved to the point that he didn't need the money anymore. So the guy asked the Shiloh, what am I supposed to do with it? Can I keep it? Do I have to? No, this, the middleman. The middleman said, what do I do with it now? Because it wasn't sent directly to the Right, it was sent to the middleman to give over. Do I have to send it back? Do I, can, do I have to give it to the Ani? What do I do with it? By the way, Chaim Solomon did not ask for the money back. This is the middleman asking on his own. And Rabbi Yalev says, no, once you were, it was given, sent to you, so it's now Zachan Adam Shalabafanov. It now belongs to the Ani. If he wants to give it as stuck up, he doesn't need it anymore, because into Hayden. He's got a whole discussion on that. It's a fascinating topic. Well, when Chaim Solomon gave, gave the money, the guy was an Ani. Right. He did the mitzvah to talk. Exactly. Once, yeah. Exactly. So it's as a zechus, so zachan adam shlobafanav. Even it was, he gave it over to be used. That's enough. That's a nice, fascinating tshuva, but that's for another day. How much does it say? It's, I don't. I can't recognize the amount. It doesn't use the. Uh, it doesn't use the currencies that I'm aware of, guilders and florins. So tshuva mem is a fascinating Hanukkah tshuva, and to begin, let's just start with. Famous Gemara and Shabbos. We all know the Gemara and Shabbos, my Hanukkah, as Rabbi, Do- Rabbi Dr. David Katz in Baltimore used to joke, paraphrasing uh, the late Rabbi Dr. Torsky in Harvard, just like there's Maimonides, your Maimonides, his Maimonides, and her Maimonides. There's Maimonides, my Hanukkah, your Hanukkah, his Hanukkah. There are many different aspects of Hanukkah to be discussed. So my Hanukkah, and Chafhei of Kislev, it's eight days of Hanukkah, not to give Hespedim and not to fast. Because Bahon Shinichnasi Yavanim Wahechol, the Yavanim went into the Hechol, Timukal Ashmanim Shavahechol, where we Gavram Achus Beis Chashbonoi Vinitzchum, Botku Vlomotsu Elapach Echot Shal Shemen, Shayamunach Bechos Samo Shokohen Gadol, Vohayabo El Hagrik Yom Echot, and Nasinates Viduku Menu Shmani Yamin. So, Rav, um, what's his name? Rav David Tevel asked the following question. David Tebel was a colleague of uh, Rabbi Yalev. Tell me, how many of the places in Halacha do we find something had to have the chosam of the Kohen Gadol? Anyone? And the answer is none. There was no obligation for anything to have the chosam of the Kohen Gadol. So why is it why is it more making such a big deal? What does that mean, the seal of the Kohen Gadol. Seal, right? The seal of the his right. seal exactly. of the office. The Kohen Gadol was the religious and political leader. He's like Aaron of his time. Yes, we never find anywhere else in the Beis Hamikdash that the Kohen Gadol seal had to be on something. Why is Igmar making such a big deal that the one bit of oil, the one flask of oil that they found, had the seal of the Kohen Gadol? Big deal. That's the question. 
So he starts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We should ask something now, right? What's your kasha? The kasha. In other words, the, the question is not so much that it was sealed, but what does that have to be the coin gun? Right. The, the fact that it was sealed is important because that means that there was was right. it wasn't touched. But why specifically? But why did it have to be the coin guttle seal? Like, where do we ever right. find there's a, a coin guttle seal? There was Wizards some guy might put a seal on it. Wizards didn't go down. Yeah. yeah, exactly. What's the point? Why does the Gemara mention that specifically? So, so he answers. He says. Was it the Shemin Mishnah? No, that was already hidden away at the time of Yoshiyahu during the end of Bayis Rishon. So he answers. You know, <laughs> nobody's ever asked me this before. That's just how the story was. Maybe it's because that the Kohen Gadol himself had donated oil to the Beis HaMikdash, and therefore it has his seal on it to show that it came from the Kohen Gadol, and this is just a random occurrence that happened. That's what he said. However, when he came to the community, Harry, one of the uh, people in the Kahol, showed me a manuscript from his predecessor of Avram Lifshitz. And he gave the following answer. Okay? In order to skill for the answer, you've got to start with the Gemara and Mishnah Menachas. So the Mishnah Menachas, we talks about there's three types of... The oil in the, in the base of Mekdash was olive oil. And there's three levels of olive oil that you use. So Shlosha Zesim, three types of olives. Uvrahem Shlosha Shlosha Smanim. And you can get three different types of oil for each type. So a total of nine subsections. Hazayis harisho in the first olives, Megargur of Rosh Hazayis, you chop it off, you knock it off from the top of the tree. For quotation, you crush it for no single tochasal and you put it into <coughs> the basket. So Zeh is called Risha. That's the first one. Ta'an Bakora, or Rabbi Yudha says Ba'avanim, you, you, you load it with a beam or with stones, and the olive, the oil that comes out of that is shiny. And then chazer v'tachan v'tachan, and then if you grind it and press it again, that's shlishi. So the Mishnah says harisha on the menorah. The first is for the menorah v'ashar the menachos, and the rest of the oil goes for the carbon menachos. That's from risha. Okay, sheni. The second one has aisa sheni. So then, with the aisa sheni, megargrob roshagag, you leave it out on the roof for kotation. You crush it and you put it into the the basket. So Rishon, so this is for the second level of olives, the highest level of that is this case over here. So you've got all the different levels of olives. You have A1, and then you have the then the Gemara asks Right. Harishon, then the next Mishnah, Harishon Shibarishon, level one of level one, Ain That's the best of the best. Harishani Shibarishon, A2. Varishon Shebesheni, which is we'll call B1, Shavin. Those are equivalent. So the Gemara asks, Shavin, what do you mean it's equivalent? For Amrit Rishon Lamanorah Vashar Lamanachos. So what does it mean, Shavin? They're the same. So Amrav Nachum by Yitzchak, my Shavin, Shavin Lamanachos. That when it comes to the menorah, the menorah is only allowed to have type A1. Best of the best of the best. When it comes to the carbon mincha, the, all the minachos, so Rashi says, it makes no difference whether you're using A1, A, sorry, A2, or B1. Both of them are considered equivalent as the primary 
oil for the carbon mincha. So then the Gemara skips down that Yacho Yehezach Kasis Pasugam Menachos. So Tamanu of Yisaron Salas Belu B'Shem and Kasis. That the second that level B is good enough. So M K Matzav and Lama Lama R because Lama R is lighting, and what's lighting have to do with Menachos? We said they're different. You might think therefore that only what's good enough for lighting the menorah is good enough for Menachos. Elam Bnei Achisacham. And my chisachon, what does it mean? On Rabbi Lazar, HaTorah Chasa Amamon and Yisrael. High quality olive oil is expensive. They used a lot more oil for the carbon mincha than they used for lighting the menorah. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, all right, good enough. For the menorah, you need the best of the best. For menachos, we'll take one step down. That's but you could use the olive olive for the menachos, but right. the Exactly. So if an individual wanted to, and because when you think about it, when you're giving over a carbon, you're supposed to give the best of the best. So if you're going to give the best of the best, and you want to do that, gesund hate. There's no requirement on the communal level to use a type A1. If you want to use it on an individual level, good enough. So if the Kohen Gadol wanted to bring a mincha... Ah, and what mincha did the Kohen Gadol bring on a daily basis? Mincha schavitin. An, an, an ephah of flour and three lug of oil that he brought every day. Nice. Now, before, besides that, the mission in Shkalim, which I well, won't do inside, we're talking about finances of the Beis HaMikdash. So every 30 days they, set, they determine the market price for everything, and that price lasted for 30 days. So you, can, you make sense if the Kohen Gotha would have stocked up at the basic price, and he probably would have purchased everything at that price at once. So he had a stockpile in his house of oil that he needed for the carbon chavitin because the chavitin had to be brought from his own pocket, not from communal funds. So it's likely that the Kohen Gadol had flasks of oil in his house with his seal on it to let people in the house know, by the way, this is for the carbonus I have to bring. So it happened on one day, the Kohen Gadol brought his flour and oil to the base of Mikdash. That was the day the Greeks came in and looted the place, and somehow this flask of oil was missed. And now comes Chafek, his slave, they find one flask with the seal of the Kohen Gadol. None left in his house. Obviously none left in the house. Right. But that's so the one. So basically, it's for the, min- the Minchas Chavit. Most likely, that's where it was from. Which is B'dievet Gosher for the Menayr? Well, that's the whole point. So the assumption is that the Kohen Gadol would have brought the best of the but best. Is there meaning sometimes in coincidence? Yes, there is, no such, there is no such thing as coincidence. <laughs> the point being here is that the assumption he's making is that since the Kohen Gadol had to bring a private carbon every day, you're assuming it would be the best of the best. So it's possible that that's where it came from. And if you're going to ask the question, though, well, how much oil did the menorah take? The menorah took three and a half lug, because half a lug for each of the seven. And as such, you have a three lug container for the menachos. How did it go into the menorah? Because the menorah needed more. So it gives two answers here. One answer is... uh, one answer is that... Um, only, only need six, because the near No, that, but that still had to be lit. 
Um, the other right. So one answer is that there's a Gemara in Bavli and Yushami that says that the three lug was an average. You needed more in the winter. You needed less in the summer. So they used a flat three lug. But what would they do? They would change the thickness of the wicks depending on the season. A longer season needed a thinner wick. A shorter season needed used a thicker wick. So for the Chanukah, they used as thin as they could make it in order to make it last. That's one approach. Another approach is he quotes here from. Uh, from the, the Sheiltos of Rabbi Chayigon, so, so, uh, who uh, says uh, what the text of the Gemara wasn't, it had enough for one day, but rather it didn't even have enough for one day. So therefore, it can work out. <laughs> so, most of us. So we see actually the Adnivas. Three look. Three look? Yes. Half during the morning, half at night, in the evening. Afternoon, sorry. So really, what we see here, not only the, the chap and the, and the sensitivity, but this is really his. This is his predecessors. Right? This is predecessors. But we child. would we wouldn't have had it unless right. unless for this trip. This, yeah. so nice. this is Rav Lipschitz's beer. So nice. It is very nice. Mm-hmm. Very nice. All right. Um, his second shuva, Simon Memzayan, addressed to Rav Meir Vial. Um, we'll have to zoom through it a bit more. So he starts as follows. There's a halacha that says if a non-Jew does malacha for a Jew on Shabbos, you're not allowed to get benefit from it. Unless, obviously, there are reasons for we're not talking about a chola or any chola or anything like that. If a non-Jew does malacha for you on Shabbos, you're not allowed to use it. So what happens if a non-Jew turns on a light for you on Shabbos? Are you allowed to use it? Are you allowed to read? Are you allowed to, st- are you allowed to be in the room? What's the question? So he says that, uh, he asks the question that, uh, I, I would think that, uh, even though you're not allowed to use the light, as the Gemara says on Kupfer, Blazer, and Aleph, pardon? Non Chola. Non Chola. Non Chola. is a completely other story. So that never, so even though you're not allowed to get Hanah from the light, he still says you're allowed to daven and learn next to the light. Now, Generally, that's a problem when learning by candlelight on Shabbos because back then they had oil lights and when the oil started running out, you would have to tip it to make sure the oil pulled in the right place. So that's a problem. So you're not allowed to learn alone by an oil light on Shabbos. You need somebody <coughs> else's around. So he says if there's somebody else around, then you're okay. And why? And what's the reason? That the only reason you're not allowed to use the light is because you're not allowed to get benefit from Malachah done on Shabbos for you. And this is not benefit. Why? Because what benefit do you get of davening and learning out of a sefer? It's the of doing a mitzvah. And there's a halachic issue. Mitzvahs love v'hennes nitnu. We don't do mitzvahs to get personal benefit. Mitzvahs exist for their own regard. So if you do get a benefit out of a mitzvah, it's not considered a halachic benefit. As such, you'd be allowed to learn out of the sefer. And he goes into a whole discussion on that, but then he switches over. This does not compare... Probably you can say even if the person's not going to learn, and just for safety, so that they don't trip, you can call that a mitzvah too. Probably. Maybe. You can probably get away with that. As Maybe. Well. What do you call it? A chol? You said a cholner. Cholas, an ill. Someone who's ill. Okay. So somebody. Right. We're talking about illness. There's a whole other discussion okay, of what. Right. What you are in We're not talking about that. We're talking about for safety. Right. For to use as uh, right. so the rub of my shul likes to point out, we have a kosher Dunkin' Donuts in town. So the halacha is if he does, if the non-Jew does malacha for you on Shabbos, then you have to wait the amount of time that it would take to make it after Shabbos before you can use it. So comes the last day of Pesach and the lines at Dunkin' Donuts start forming the second you make Havdalah and they go on for hours. 
So he always says, yes, you're allowed to get in line immediately after Pesach, but you still have to wait an hour and a half after Pesach before actually eating it because they're making it for you on Yom Tif. <laughs> Same idea. Okay. Anyway, he says, this doesn't compare to Ner Hanukkah. So as all the postgim agreed, this is in Shulchan Aruch and Tafresh Ayin Gimel, Sif Gimel, uh, sorry, Sif Aleph, you're not allowed to use Nir Hanukkah at all. Bain Bashabas Bain Bahol, whether it's Shabbos or in the week. A fiel livedok moos or gimnosan la os ura usur. Can't even count money next to it. A fiel tashmish shomit shokdusha gongomod la ora. Even something shokdusha such as learning next to it. And then he quotes the H Omrim, the Tashmish Shokdusha is allowed. The Mishnah Brura has a whole long discussion about this halacha here in the Bear Halacha. But what's his point here? Why is, why is Ner Hanukkah? Why are you not allowed to use Ner Hanukkah? Because it's not a question of Hana'ah, but rather, you're still not allowed to use it. And he gives some examples. The Ramban says in Rashi, because you have to show that this is a Ner, this is a, a ner Mitzvah. You're using this for a Mitzvah, and as such, it is inappropriate to use it for anything else. Completely. And he quotes the Ran. The Ran says that it's not just that, it's a Bizoyon to a Mitzvah. It's something that's disgraceful to use something that you're using for a mitzvah for a mundane manner. We find this concept of bizarre mitzvah in various other places. But then he quotes the Balamor. The Balamor says that because it's zecher to the mikdash, and in the mikdash you are not allowed to get any use whatsoever of the menorah, here too it's aser. And I'm not going to read it inside because it's getting late. So he explains the Balamor as follows. This is not a Hanah issue. This is, what does it mean, zecher the mikdash? What lighting was there in the base of Mikdash? You had the menorah, either one or ten, depending on what. You're not allowed to use that light for anything. The only lighting, what, so what lighting did they use? They always opened the doors. The base of Mikdash had doors, not a curtain. Any Kohen who went in to do more, because you're not allowed to do anything in the base of Mikdash that wasn't Avoda. You go in, <coughs> Cohen does his hashtachava, he does his havoda, and then leaves. In the morning, they open the door. You have the natural light of the sun illuminating the Beis HaMikdash. You light your menorah and leave. The lights of the menorah and the Beis HaMikdash were not used for anything. As such, therefore, the lights of our menorah, since it is to be in place of the menorah in the base of Mikdash is not allowed to be used for anything. So it's placed to the window? Let the window so that other people to show that you're doing it. Okay. But you're not supposed to be getting anything. The point of lighting the menorah is that generally, generally you light a menorah because you want the light. You want the light. The point of lighting the menorah is it's not for light. It's for show. Yes, other people are seeing it, but that's all they're doing. They're seeing it. They're not doing anything with it. Even you, you're not allowed to do anything with it. Why? Because it's based on the menorah from the Beis HaMikdash. And just like the menorah in the Beis HaMikdash was not used for anything, not even for illumination for the Kohanim. It's a sign upon the doorpost. It's the same thing. Right. Same here, your menorah too, you should not be using for anything. This is not a Hanah benefit issue. So what is it? It's, it's an Isser of Tashmish? It's an Isser of Tashmish because it's compared explicitly to the menorah of the Beis HaMikdash. Just like the menorah of the Beis HaMikdash, the light was used for... What was the Isser by the Beis HaMikdash? It's not an Isser. It's a practical fact. Okay. The practical fact of the light of the Beis... And that's his point. 
the practical fact of the lights of the menorah and the Beis Hamikdash was that it was but not the, used the, the for only, anything. The Isra only carries over in the Ner Hanukkah. Since the Ner Hanukkah is built to replicate the idea of the Beis Hamikdash, so now it becomes Asr Lishtamish Lohir. In the base of is that saying it better? In the base of Mikdash itself, it was a Mitzias that they weren't that they weren't using its light, right? But since the Ner Hanukkah was created by Chazal to represent, well, the what was the problem in the basements of using the light? There was none. The Mitzias, because in the base of Mikdash, you're not allowed to do anything that's not a voda at all. You can't even think anything. Sure. You can't so, do anything. You asked if there was a view. Wants to look at the parsha, you know. Inside the base, inside the heichal, no. No. Don't don't worry. We're not talking about the azara. I think he's asking: Is there a din meila in? Are you being? Would he be moel if he would go over to the? Anybody would go to the. It's not. It's either meila, or it's an issue of violating the issur of doing something in the in the heichal that's not avoda. Why would it be meila? Meila means benefiting from hektish. Does mean does it go with the same idea of stealing? That's a different question. Right. I know Shabbat. Right. So it's more likely it doesn't go along the lines of Mi'ila, but rather the prohibition against doing something in the base of Mikdash that's not a sorry, the Hecho itself that's not related to Avoda. So what's the point of the Shamash? So the so the Shamas is therefore so therefore we can get some use out of it. It's the extra light, has no kedusha like anything else, and that way we are able to do whatever we need. And even though so, you might be using the light of seven, you know, right? Nair echad Once you have one light, then it's good for everything. So we definitely have a nair lamea here with Gershon, who, who came in uh, really uh, out of the blue. He says he wasn't prepared. Out of the blue highway. Gershon, when he's not prepared, is more prepared than the. This was. Uh, you could say more prepared than me. It's like, I'm, 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 <laughs> Why does this always have to be about you? I'm just, he's taking my place. That's what I'm saying. I'll gladly give it over. It's the Yeshua's a postcard machine. So, and we can even chop mincha, which is also what you do. We should only hear Rafuas. Only Rafuas and Yeshua's mitzvah shem. Hopefully, I'll be able to tell you the baby's name soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ladies have to set up.